You're listening to Awakening with Rabbi Ami Silver on the Shefa Podcast Network. Join Rabbi Ami as he shares from the wellsprings of Jewish spiritual teaching and practice and guides us on a path of healing, transformation, and awakening to experiencing the divine. Okay, so what I want to share today are thoughts that really arise around these parashiyot. This is a kind of strange thing where both in, in Israel and outside of Israel, we're reading the same parsha, but not only the same parsha. Um, Chukat and, and Balak being read together in Chutzar. It's in here in Israel. We already read Chukat. We're already in Balak. But there, this, this teaching we'll, we'll be looking at tonight really spans the content of both of those parsha, but but more importantly, in my mind, this is actually a real turning point where we are headed from now, from really chukat, um, and then is intensified in Balak and Pinchas. This is from now till the end of the Torah. We're in a new zone. And I, I believe we're only deepening more into that zone. Um, and that zone is the end of Moshe's life. That on some level, what begins... Maybe you could even trace back to somewhere in the middle of Baha'u'llah, where things start to turn the downward spiral of the, of the desert experience. But really what starts in Chukat with the decree of Moshe's death is what leads us to the very last verses of the Torah and really like the end of the Torah. From here on, we are dealing with, in some way or another, the story of the end of Moshe's life. Um, so what we're going to look at today is is going to be a series of sources and ideas that are thread through these parashiyot and, and I think are, are helping form a certain understanding of what these parashiyot mean for us, but really how we can conceive of this super significant shift in what's happening in the Torah and what the, what the death of Moshe really means and colors for us. Um, as we're engaging with Torah, not only here in these parashiyot, but bichlal. The Torah, on some level, is the biography of Moshe Rabbeinu, <laughs> at least a big chunk of it. And we are enter- entering the swan song. So this is, this is something we need to learn from. Moshe's death is written into the Torah. The Torah ends with him not making it to the Promised Land. This is his final teaching, and it's beginning now. Okay? So what I want to begin with, and really... This is really probably just two sentences in the Midrash and Midrash Bamid Baraba and Parsha Naso, which form the basis of all of this. Um, but I'll, I'll obviously share a bit more than that. The, the Midrash and Parsha Naso compares Moshe Rabbeinu and Bilam. Midrash says that the, the final pasuk of the Torah, right? Lokam There never arose in Israel a prophet like Moshe. So the Midrash immediately says, there was never a prophet like Moshe for Israel. But in the other nations, there was a prophet like Moshe. And that was Bilam. And then the Midrash goes to list things that were different between their prophecies, their prophetic powers. Moshe had three qualities that Bilam didn't have. Moshe spoke with God standing. As God says, come stand with me so I can talk to you. Whereas Bilam, Bilam would fall in his prophetic experience. It says, his eyes would open in a fallen state. Moshe would speak with God mouth to mouth, as the Torah says explicitly, and Bilam would only hear the words of God. It wasn't a direct encounter. Moshe would speak with God face to face. As it says, And with Bilam, and here the Midrash is explaining what face to face means, with Bilam, God spoke through parables. As it says, Bilam opened with his parable or his analogy, his, his poetry, basically. Whereas Moshe's was face to face, I think we can infer from the Midrash that what that means is that Moshe's prophecy was a complete articulation. The expression was clear. It wasn't by way of parable. It wasn't an analogy. But Moshe was given the direct communication. I think similar to what Chazal says, that Moshe saw, saw through an aspaklaria hamiira, a, a 
um, lens or a mirror that is illuminated and not a clouded one. Okay, so those are things Moshe had that Balaam didn't. But, but now the Midrash takes us somewhere else. Midrash says, and there were three qualities that Bilam had that Moshe didn't have. Moshe lo haya yodea mi medaberimo. Bilam haya yodea mi medaberimo. Moshe didn't know who was speaking with him. If we were to just read those words, <laughs> that on some level is the entire, entire sheer. Moshe didn't know who was talking to him. Bilam, however, knew who was talking to him as it says that he saw the vision of God. Midrash goes on, Moshe didn't know when God would speak to him, but Bilam knew when. Bilam had knowledge of divine knowledge. He knew, and Moshe didn't. Midrash gives a parable to this, like the chef of the king, who knows what animals are, are getting, getting slaughtered to put on the table today, how much expenses are we spending on the meal, what are all the side dishes, what's going on the table. So to Bilam Hayayodea, Ma HaKadosh Baruch Hu Atid L'daberimo. Bilam knew what God was going to say to him. He knew what the message was going to be. It's like a prophecy about the prophecy. He already knew what God was going to say. So Bilam knows who's talking to him, when God's talking to him, and even what God's going to say. It's all very known. And Moshe doesn't know who's talking to him. And Moshe doesn't know when God is going to talk to him. And we can infer here from the Midrash, Moshe has no idea what's going to happen there either. It's completely unknown. Now, we might think that the Midrash certainly seems to set it up as, uh, you know, an advantage or some kind of, some kind of greater strength that Bilam had that Moshe doesn't. But I think embedded in this Midrash is actually a very deep teaching about the Maila, the even higher degree of Moshe's relationship with God. Because Moshe is contacting, in all ways, he is contacting the unknown. And what we see in Moshe's life is that the element of not knowing is something that appears a number of times both in his life and especially at the end of his life at his death. And it's something that I believe is core to the teaching of Moshe Rabbeinu. We also need to just ask, like, why is the Torah comparing, Bil the Midrash comparing Bilam and Moshe in the first place? Right? Like, why do they need to kind of be put up on these parallel scales? What's the relationship between them? It, you know, it's, it's even strange, the whole Parsha of Parshat Balak is telling a story about Bilam. It's not even talking about our story about Bnei Israel. It's not talking about Moshe and God doing their thing. This is just a kind of camera shift to what's going on on the other side of the mountain to some other prophet and his relationship with God. But Chazal is saying, no, this prophet Bilam is here to be some kind of companion or foil to our prophet Moshe. They are, they are intricately linked to one another. And I believe we actually see this because what, what ends up happening, you know, this stop on the path, where B'nai Israel are on the map in Parshat Balak, they're in the, the hills of Moab, in the, the lands of Sihon and Og that they're going to conquer, that they conquer in Parshat Chukat, actually. This is where they're going to spend the rest of the Torah. This is where the rest of the story takes place until they cross into the land of Israel. And this is where Moshe is going to be buried. So it's not just that Moshe's death was decreed recently, but it's that Moshe's place of death, it's, this is Moshe's last stop. And part of the story of Moshe's last stop is this strange prophet from the other nation who's, who's coming onto the scene to have this other kind of relationship with God. And it goes even, even further than that, because Chazal says that Moshe is buried in on Har Navo, right? The Torah says on the mountain of Navo, Mul Beit Peor, he's buried facing the house of Peor, which is the place where at the end of Parshat Balak, Ben Israel are doing this 
wild idolatrous practice, which then leads us into the next parsha of Pinchas, which we'll, we'll speak about a little bit, a bit more in detail as we go. But Chazal says that what brought the children of Israel to engage in idolatry here was actually the Eitzah, the advice of Bilam. He tried all he could to curse them, to curse them, to curse them, it didn't work. So he says to, to, to Balak, and, and he says to, to the, the, the Moabites, he says, you know what? Get some, get some women to set up a market, have them lure B'nai Israel into the shops, have them sit them down, give them some wine, give them a nice price on, on the clothing. This is actually what the, what the Gemara says. He gave them a sale. What, what, can, what can a Jew, you know, uh, <laughs> what can a Jew stay away from uh, more than a sale? And that in this way, they seduced them and then actually brought the seduced them to, to survivors. And then Moshe is buried in this spot where Bilam advised this kind of trap for B'nai Israel. I'm gonna. We'll come back to that story, but but the 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 last chapter of the Torah says that Moshe is buried in Eretz Moav, where we are now, right? The land of Moav, Mul Beit facing this house of idolatry. No person knows his burial port, uh, his burial plot until this very day. Look at that, those words. Moshe's place is unknown. The end of his life is unknown. The place he dies is unknown. And the Midrash is telling us that his entire relationship with God is one that is unknown. That Moshe relates to God as the unknowable. And Moshe prophesizes in a way of coming into contact with the unknown, with the loyada. And this ends up being his ultimate destiny. I want to say as, as, as an aside that we actually see from the parshiot that flow out from Chukat, after the decree of Moshe's death, we see Moshe entering into situations where he doesn't know what to do. Okay? We see that in, in Pinchas, when, when the Ma'aseh Pa'or, when Cosby and Zimri are, are doing this act in front of the whole nation, so Pinchas is the one who stands up and he, he spears them, you know, through the two of them, and puts an end to the plague. Chazal says that Moshe forgot the halacha. Moshe forgot the instructions. What do I do in a situation like this? How do I respond? It slipped out of his mind. He couldn't access that knowledge. We also see later in, in Sefer B'minbar towards the end that Benot Tzlafchad, the, the daughters of Tzlafchad, come and say, Moshe, we want a plot of land. We don't want to lose out. And Moshe says, I don't know the answer, but let's ask God. In a, in a sense, Moshe's leadership style shifts to being one of much less knowing. And Chazal even says that when he dies, there were something like 350 halachot that were forgotten, and then that expanded to like 7,000 laws that nobody knew anymore. Moshe not only enters into the divine unknown, but he also, in a sense, enters into this kind of mode of unknowing and of forgetting, which is just an added piece here. And I want to I want to amplify the sense by 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 some of what Chazal says. Chazal says that Moshe's burial point was so unknown that even Moshe himself didn't know where he was buried. The Gemara and Sota says, "No man knew his burial point, his burial plot." Moshe doesn't know where he is buried. He's even, you notice, he says in the present, right? No one knows Moshe's burial point to this day. Moshe still doesn't know where he was buried. As it says, no ish knew the burial plot. And it says at the end of the Torah, Moshe is called an ish, the man of God, the human being who encounters the divine, the Ish Elohim, or even the Zohar says Ish Elohim, the, the, the one who's married to God. The one who's married to God has no idea where he ends up. Moshe himself doesn't know where he was buried. And at the same time, with all of this unknown and kind of mystery surrounding the end of Moshe's life and the place where he dies and is buried, there's something about his burial that is very 
known. Which is the following. Chazal says, this is a kind of well-known Mishnah in Perkei Avot. It's well-known, I think, because people tend to learn Perkei Avot. <laughs> so it's one of the more well-known Mishnahs anyway. Mishnah says that there were 10 things that were created on Erev Shabbos Ben Hashmashot, the sixth day of creation, before the sunset. And it lists all of these kind of miraculous and somewhat strange things we hear in the Torah, the mouth of the earth that swallowed Korach, the well that accompanied B'nai Israel in the desert, the mouth of Bilam's donkey, etc., etc. The Yeshomrim Kfuratosha Moshe. There are those who say the burial place of Moshe Rabbeinu was created in the sixth day of creation, which flies in the face of everything we think about the end of Moshe's life. Right, because we think, oh, Moshe was supposed to enter the land of Israel. He should have led the people through, but oh, he made a terrible mistake. He hit the rock. We don't quite understand why that's such a big deal, but it was such a big deal that God said, oh, now you're not going to enter the land, and now you're going to be buried in this very specific place for this very specific reason. Chazal says also he's buried in, in the place facing Baal Poor because he atones eternally for that act of Poor. It sounds from the story that everything surrounding Moshe's death and his burial is incidental. It's caused as a consequence from his sins and the sins of B'nai Israel. But Chazal says, you know what? Moshe had a burial plot that was reserved for him from the sixth day of creation. There's something extremely intentional and purposeful about this wrinkle in Moshe's life, which isn't a wrinkle at all, but which is actually, I would say, a destiny. It's not an accident. So it seems that there's one form of not knowing, which is a lack of knowledge. And there's another form of not knowing, which is a way of knowing. To not know, to lo yodea, is the way of knowing, perhaps the only way of knowing. But it's not the kind of knowing that we know. <laughs> not the kind of knowing in which we have a sense of certainty and grasp. It's a kind of drawing near to or being subsumed by something that we are filled with the awareness of not knowing it. So in order to try to come closer to this uh, unknown mystery <laughs> of, Moshe's, of Moshe's death, I want to go back to, to Parshat Chukat, to really not the place where Moshe's death begins, but I would say even prior to that, because we know that Chukat starts with speaking about the Paraduma about the red heifer. And it's speaking kind of out of nowhere in the Torah, right? It seems very surprising. It's speaking about these rituals, about how to purify those who have come into contact with death. And it's called Chukat Torah, as if like, this is the greatest puzzle of the Torah. May Chazal says the Chukah is that which is the impenetrable, unknowable kind of uh, mitzvah of taking this completely red cow and burning it to its ashes and mixing it with water and other ingredients. And that's so one unknown about it is what's with these strange and mysterious ingredients that go into it. Another unknown about it is the process by which the mixture of ash and water and other elements has the ability to purify those who have become impure. And at the very same time, the pure one who handles them and administers it becomes impure themselves. So how can the same substance make pure, impure, and impure, pure? Another one of these puzzles, another of the chukah, the kind of unknown and, un, and hard, to, hard to comprehend piece of this mysterious mitzvah. But some have pointed out that the para aduma actually doesn't just come out of nowhere in the Torah, that, that there seems to be a kind of unspoken reason that it's being brought up at this moment. And that is that the Torah then says that kol ha'eda arrived in Bartzin. And Rashi says kol ha'eda means that we, at this point in the Torah's narrative, have gotten to the complete nation 
we are now 38 years later than where we last left off, where an entire generation has died off. And now the people who are still alive are the ones who are destined to enter the land of Israel. So Paraduma, while the Torah doesn't say it explicitly, it also serves as a kind of bridge between the previous generation and the new generation. But really, the kind of unspoken undercurrent here is that there has been 38 years of death that the Torah leaves silent or leaves absent from the narrative. And all we're told about is that there is a way to become pure from the impurity of death. There is a way to somehow step out of that state of encountering death, of contacting death, which without saying, the entire generation has been dealing with for 38 years now. And there's another piece of this, which is the very next story, and really the next stories of Parsha Chukat are about the final deaths of this generation of these, not only anyone in the generation, but these primary figures who have led everybody to this point, which is we have immediately then the death of Miriam. She dies. Then we have the death of Aaron. Well, before the death of Aaron, we have the story of Meimiriva, and then we have the death of, of Aaron, and we have the decree that Moshe himself is going to die. And now you might say, okay, of course Moshe's going to die. <laughs> I mean, he's a human being, right? But Obviously, the impact, the import of, of Moshe's death here is not just that he's going to die, but he's going to die in the desert. He's going to die without entering the land. He's not going to reach the final destination that we've been hoping for this whole time, um, which perhaps is another way of understanding what it means, chukat ha-Torah, this kind of deep mystery and puzzle of the Torah. Because how could Moshe not enter the land of Israel? How could this story be of the man who was urged by God, chosen to, to redeem us, who did all these wonders and miracles, who is our prophet, who is the human channel between the divine and the human realm? He's not going to go to the land because he hit a rock? you kidding me? And I would say that really even deeper, I think that there's a piece of chukata Torah, this kind of, you know, chukat comes from the language of chakika, something that's been etched into being. It's just set in stone, something that is, and we cannot undo, but we have to grapple with its being as much as it kind of challenges everything we may have thought. I actually think it's a, it's a, it's a great mystery to us. How is it possible that Moshe himself dies at all? You know, I don't know about you, but I think for a lot of us, like we get to Simcha's Torah, we read the end of the Torah, we read about Moshe dying, and every single time something in our heart kind of dies. It's like, oh, you mean he died? <laughs> you know, Chazal says that, that, that Moshe writes about his death with his tears. He writes those last psukim of the Torah with his tears. And I think on some level Chazal is saying, we're all crying when we get to those psukim. Because even though I've heard the story already, and even though I know, yes, conceptually, Moshe was a human being, and human beings are mortal, and they don't live forever, but there's something about Moshe, the figure of Moshe, that is a transcendent human being. It's, it's hard to really accept that, that, this is, that this prophet died. Right? I mean, he spent 40 days and nights on a mountain without eating or drinking. He's, he's going to just die? Like... Of old age? I mean, the Torah even says he didn't really age in his old age. It's, 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 Moshe's death is a mystery. And Moshe's death is a mystery, I think, most essentially, because he continues to be our prophet and our teacher. He continues to be Moshe Rabbeinu, not just in some mythic way, but we learn the Torah, we walk into, we're in constant contact with Moshe. He is our shepherd. He's the Raya Mehemda, the, the loyal shepherd. He continues to be our teacher in, in the most visceral sense of, I read his words and I'm, I'm in his dialogue and I enter into his mind and his, his crises with him. 
You're telling me that he's dead? He's not dead. I'm, I'm talking to him right now. He's also dead. Even Ish Elohim, even the man of God, or the divine human of Moshe, he also dies. And in a, in a very real sense, Chazal actually shows us that this ritual, too, of the Paraduma, the mysterious cow, the red cow who, who somehow helps us be released from the, the traps of death, that this Paraduma actually has something to do with the mystery of Moshe's death itself. It's not just happenstance that happens in the same parsha. And, and this is, in a sense, kind of following the breadcrumbs that Chazal has dropped for us. Because Chazal asks, asks a question. On the, on, the, on, the, on the level of what is this cow thing all about, okay? So Chazal asks this question. Why a female cow? Why a para aduma? And actually, it's more than that. It has to be an adult female cow. Okay? It has to be four years old or, or older. And Chazal says the following, Amar Aivu, we can draw an analogy, a parable. It's like the son of a maidservant who dirtied, who messed up the palace of a king. Amar HaMelech, the king says, Let the mother come and clean up her baby's feces. The, the image here is like a maidservant who has, you know, her toddler child running around naked in the, in the palace, and, and the king goes to the bathroom on the palace floor, and the king says, okay, let's call in the mother to clean up after her child. The para, the female, adult, red cow, let the mother come and atone for the act of the egel, of the calf. The para aduma, the process of becoming pure from the impurity of death, is not rooted only in death as we know it, but it somehow relates all the way back to cheta egel, to the sin of the golden calf. Now, what does the sin of the golden calf have to do with death? What does the sin of the golden calf have to do with a mother? Okay. Well, so ask yourself, why did B'nai Israel build the golden calf in the first place? So we know that they see that Moshe is delaying coming down from the mountain. And they turn and they say, Let's make a new God for ourselves. Because this man, Moshe, who lifted us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. Mm-hmm. Look at that. Moshe, who held all of that certainty for us, all of the knowing, now he's unknown to us. We don't know now what happened. The crisis that caused the, ca- the calf, the Cheta Egel, is that B'nai Israel lost knowledge. They went into the place of Loyadano, of the unknown, and they immediately sought to fill their lack of knowledge. They're not knowing where Moshe was with a calf. And to amplify this, Chazal says, you know what they saw? <laughs> they saw a vision of Moshe's coffin floating through the air that Satan himself came and he said you know what happened to Moshe your teacher? He died up there he's not coming back and that they, the, the, the clouds you know, darkened, the sky darkened and they could see an image of his coffin being carried away 
Moshe, their sense of security, the, the human being who held all certainty for them, we don't know what happened to him. He must have died. We're going to create an ego. We're going to create a calf. What do you mean you're going to create a calf? What does one have to do with the other? Oh, Chazal is telling us here what one has to do with the other. Because the calf is the child of the mother. The calf is the child of the para. So who's the mother? In a sense, Moshe is the mother. The figure who for them had been literally feeding them, petitioning on their behalf, carrying them, leading them, guiding them through all of the unknowns. He's gone, and they freak out like a child whose mother maybe is never coming back. And so what they do, look at what they do. They create a child. They create an egg gal. They create a child who's lost its mother. And they revel in that child. They say, mom's gone. We don't know what to do. Let's just kind of go wild and unravel here. You would think they'd create a new mother. <laughs> you would think they'd create a mother. But I think to create a mother, you would need some sense of the kind of stability that they're, that they're lacking right now. What they create is an amplified image of the state that they found themselves in. Because if Moshe, the protector, the guide, the leader, isn't here to hold us safe anymore, I guess this is what's real. I guess this is what's real now. And what's real now is this, this ego. And Chazal says, Tavo para ego. The purification from death is cleaning up the mess of Chet ego. It is somehow this, again, impenetrable, unknowable ritual act where we are dealing viscerally and directly with something that we don't know what it is, and we don't know how it works, and we don't know why it is, it is somehow addressing that deep anxiety and crisis that we experienced when we first saw Moshe leaving this world, when we first realized that Moshe is immortal. That ultimately, we are all facing that uncertain end. We are living in uncertainty. And we rushed to cover up that fear with some kind of divine image that was not divine at all, but was just an amplification of our, of our fears. And the para comes along and says, I want to help you find a way to live with the mystery of death. To start with, you're going to have to acknowledge that you are mortal. You're going to have to look up a, a, a sim, the ultimate symbol of, of a mother in the eye. Seeing that you have a mother is knowing that you are mortal. More so than, than seeing a father. Seeing a mother is seeing the flesh that you were formed from. So you're going to have to look that in the eye. And in the, in the process of the paraduma, you're also going to have to face the loss of that. But in a way in which that ultimate unknown that accompanies us and really envelops us as mortal beings in our mortality and humanness is not something that we have to run away from that we have to be defiled by, be it tumat mate, ritual impurity, be it the saw of the child, that kind of feces of the baby, that Chazal is saying what the Masa Egel was. The Masa Egel was the children of Israel wetting themselves and splashing around in their, in their mortality. Right? What is more mortal than the waste of our own body? And if we have no vision of how to 
live a life of meaning, purpose, selfhood in the face of also acknowledging our mortality. So we're, we're left wallowing in that. That's what the Chet Ego was. Somehow the Para Aduma is coming to bring us into the fold of the unknown and in that process allow us to find Tahara that can, that can arise out of Tum'ah. That yes, it's true. Death is real. Mortality is our destiny. And yet, we can still access something true, real, and divine. It's the process of cleaning up the mess that we left in the palace. <laughs> and of having that mother come to, to clean it. I'll share one other thing in, in the, the, the lines just before it. I read you in the Mendrash. Tell this wild story about, you know, a, a Gentile who approaches one of the rabbis and he wants to sort of like pick at him. He's like, what's this crazy thing you guys are doing? It looks like witchcraft. You're burning the cow, you're doing this, you're doing that. And he basically says to him like, hey, when, when you see somebody who's been gripped by a kind of evil spirit, you know, they've kind of lost their, their senses, what do you do? And he describes the kind of like, also, um, you know, shamanic or witch, witch-like ritual that they would do to, to treat that kind of illness. And he says, okay, how different, are, how different is it really? But then his students, the rabbi, the, the guy walks away, and the students say to the rabbi, like, hey, what was that all about? You really believe that? He's like, listen, I'll tell you the truth. Death does not cause impurity. The dead body doesn't bring Tumah, and the water doesn't bring Tahara. It's not these objects. That's, this is my read. It's not these objects that have some kind of metaphysical hold or effect on reality. But rather God said, I have made a chok. I have etched something into being into reality. I have decreed a decree. There is no way for you to violate my decree. As it says, this is the etched in reality of the Torah. And, and I use those words because I think on some level what, what that response is saying is we have a... There, there's an instinctive need to transition out of encountering death. We have something in us that is affected by death, that is affected by mortality, and we have something in us that is cleansed by water. What the Rav here is doing is he's saying, it's actually, I believe it's Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, he's saying, we're not just talking... This isn't metaphysics or like mumbo-jumbo or voodoo or what have you. There's something real that God has just put into creation that we have to deal with. We have to find a way to reckon with. And God is showing us through this mitzvah a way to reckon with that thing, that it just is because it is. There is no way to escape the effect that mortality has on us. Ah, but there is a way to encounter it and deal with it in a way that's going to be redemptive to our living and not take away our sense of life from us. I mean, that's ultimately what, what we're talking about here, that yes, Moshe is going to die, but there is a redemptive teaching in his death. Yes, we are all going to encounter mortality, but there is something that allows us to continue to live along with that. I want to, to continue on here because this image of the mother cleaning up the tzoa, the, the feces, the mess, the filth of her child, actually also has a parallel that brings us back to Moshe's death and Moshe's burial that happens here in the story of Midian and Moab and, and Bilam and, and everything that we're seeing in this parsha, which is again at Harsinai, Chazal saying, "Bnei Israel, 
had an, a vision of Moshe's death. They acted out. It's likened to a child dirtying themselves in the, the, the palace. Look at what Chazal says is happening. What was the Eitzah? I began to mention it. The Eitzah that Bilam gave to, to Balak and to Moab, how are you going to get, get these people that I can't curse, but how are you going to get them to, to kind of lose their status and, and, and join your fold and serve your gods, etc., etc., etc.? So I won't recap all of it, but I, you know, I said that they, they set up these markets with, with, with prostitutes who would basically work in these shops and, and lure them in and begin to talk to them. Okay, this is in the, the Gemara Sanhedrin. And the, the woman would, would be speaking with, with the, the man who was in there shopping and give him a cup of wine to drink. When he would drink the wine, he would then be, be really aroused and he would want this woman to sleep with him. And the response was, she would take an idol out of her, out of her cloak and she would say, okay, but worship my God. And he would say, hello, Yehudiani, but I'm Jewish. What do you care? All we're asking from you is piur. Right? It's called Baal Peor. Pay ayin vavresh, piur, pay yud ayin vavresh. Piur, peor literally means an opening or an uncovering, something being exposed. Piur is a word for going to the bathroom. What was the form of, of, of idol worship to Baal Peor? It was to basically make an offering of feces to this god. That was the act of worship. And it's so strange to us, right? To the, to the degree that which Chazal, Chazal tells these stories about, you know, People who, even to do that, if you walk by this idol and you want to disgrace it, and you do that act, you have violated the prohibition of idol worship because that is the way of worshiping that idol. It sounds like a crazy thing, right? But I think maybe it's not such a crazy thing. Because why would somebody worship an idol like that? On some level, we began to see it with Chayta Egev, right? Why would somebody worship their waste material, or use that as the, as the medium of worship. Well, what are you worshiping? You're worshiping Baal Peor. Where is mastery? Mastery is in the opening. A pa'ar literally means a gap. A gaping hole. Baal Peor is the God of the gap in reality. It is a worship directed toward that utter absence and abyss that we encounter when we're aware that we are creatures of waste. That we're, when we are aware of our mortality to the degree to which all I can really live. What is my ultimate power? This is what it looks like to interact with my ultimate power. My ultimate power is what is not. My ultimate power is that crack, that, that endless hole that exists here at the root of things. And I'm going to worship it with my waste matter. It's in a sense a outgrowth of encountering the same things we've been seeing until now, of encountering the loss, the absence that exists here in our, in our lives. Mm-hmm. So what, you're going to tell me that there's some kind of other, more real power than that? Uh-uh. Show me. What can you do? What can you do? What what can you do to convince me otherwise? You're going to tell me that there's being pure from impurity, that there's life beyond death, that 
even in the shadow of death, there is a life that is worth living? Prove it to me. Because I don't see it. Baal Pa'or is worshipping that that gap. It's worshipping that abyss. Every day I live is a day closer to dying. Yeah. And so isn't it telling or bizarre or maybe somewhat fitting that Moshe, the man of eternity who is ultimately mortal, is buried Mul Beit Peor. He's buried right there. This is his next door neighbor. For all of eternity. And for all of eternity, exactly. Because Chazal says, Moshe is buried facing Beit Peor. He's facing the site where this um, collective worship with waste matter took place. Why is he buried right there? I mentioned before the Gemara says, L'chaper to atone for that action, Tosot brings a Midrash. Tosot says, every single year, on the anniversary of that sin with Benot Moab, with the daughters of Moab, that the idol or the god of Peor begins to arise from its place in order to bring accusation against Shurnaz and say, I know what you did here. I will remind you of the time that you fell into the claws of my abyss. But when it sees the kever, the grave of Moshe, it returns and sinks into the earth, which, by the way, there's no human who knows Moshe's burial point. It seems like the only one who knows where Moshe is buried is, is God and, and, and Baal Peor. They see where Moshe's, Moshe's, Moshe's grave. Whenever it gets a vision of Moshe's grave, it's brought back down into the place that it came from, and it's buried up to its nostrils, it says. Mm-hmm. Wild midrash, right? But what is it? What is the midrash telling us? The midrash is telling us that there there is an effect of Moshe's death and burial in this place, and the effect of that is that Moshe is forever holding a vision that responds to, encounters a gaze that looks into the eyes of the Baal Peor and carries some vision that, that causes that power, that force, that voice to return to the place from whence it came. That if we were to take this Midrash out of its kind of mythic story, what is the story telling us? It's telling us that the voice of Baal Peor reverberates forever. There's always a voice that can arise from the depths of the earth to say, hey, you and I know that this is what, what's, what your end is going to be. You and I know that this is really what's, what this is all about. Mm-hmm. There is a gaping hole in this world. Don't pretend otherwise. And there's this, this teacher, Moshe, who's buried in the unknown place, who dies in the place of lo yada, of not knowing, and who is able, specifically from that place, to look that voice of Balpur in the face. And just with his very gaze, it returns to, to under the ground. So what is it that Moshe has to say to us? What is it that Moshe is doing in this unmarked grave next to Balpur? And here's where I want to come back to what sounds like a crazy idea. And, and I, I don't say this to be taken literally, but on some level, Moshe is our para aduma. Moshe is our response to the confrontation with mortality and death. He is the mother who comes to clean up our filth in the sense that He's mortal like us. 
he does die a tragic death like all deaths are. There is incompleteness in his life. He is an ish. And yet the effect of his figure and being and teaching continues forever. But it continues not because he succeeded in getting to the promised land, nor because he knows all the answers and can answer them for us. Moshe's ultimate success was to walk up the mountain and be engulfed by the unknown of God. But not only for one moment, he was able in that act to continue to uphold for us that message of the God that we cannot know and that is yet still present to us. Here, let me give you a gift. It's called, I don't know. And that's where I am forever. That's what I came to in my life of communication with the God that I don't know. There's a crazy Midrash Chazal that Rashi brings on that pasuk of, you know, nobody know, that that he was buried in this this valley in this or in, the, in this mountain facing facing Beit Bor. Rabbi Ishmael says that Vayikbor Otobagai means Moshe buried himself. Mm-hmm. Moshe buried himself in the grave that he doesn't know where it is. He walked into the unknown and the unknowable. And this is his final and lasting teaching. His lasting teaching is to find an everlasting home in that unknown. And that in a sense... It's not just, this is one weird mitzvah, let me teach it to you. It's, this is the chukah of the entire Torah. Somehow, this mystery of how to live a life where we can be in contact with the divine, a life of tahara, from amidst the shadow, the very real presence of tum'at ha'met, of the death and mortality that is as real as anything else that we are living, this is the mystery that the Torah is here to teach us. The Torah is here to teach us over and over and over again to take a step towards the God that we don't know. And that's the Tahara? I think that the Tahara is to find a way, a possibility of affirming the life that we are living while we know very well that it's going to have an end, that it comes from somewhere and it's going to end somewhere. And by affirming that life that we are living now, even in the shadow of death and of loss of life, of peor, of par, of gap, of absence, this life actually transcends that abyss also. Ami, I don't know if this is the time or place, but could you tie this into your teaching of Hamakom? The place, but it's unknowable, but we walk into Hamakom. I can't go into it so deeply, but I could say that something to meditate on, Sima, this is what we say to mourners, right? Hamakom Yenachim, it's going. We don't say God's going to give you comfort. That's what I can Does that, is that okay? (laughs) I'll get busy. <laughs> something to something to just sit with. It's very specific how we how we speak and communicate a sense of a holding environment to somebody who is facing that loss in such a such an immediate way. We don't say there's God because you can't talk about God in the way that you're used to talking about God. There, God is not a concept that makes sense when you are a mourner. Yeah. 
but there is a makom. A mourner is somehow, despite it not feeling possible or making sense, this is real. There is something holding you here in this. Mm. It doesn't mean that what you're experiencing isn't real. What you're experiencing is extremely real. And there is something that is holding you here and, and holding a space for you in whatever situation you are in. That's, that's how, we, how we talk about something of, of affirming life to somebody who's facing death. That, you, that despite all of that, yet you are here. And being here means that there is a here to hold you in. Mm. So Moshe goes to a place. It's called Loyada. It's called the unknown. And that's where Moshe camps out for the rest of eternity to continue to teach us, to continue to share a vision that responds to our anxiety of, oh my God, I'm all alone. <laughs> I am an untethered kid running around in my waist without any security to ultimately hold me. And here Moshe says, Yes, and. Yes, and. There is a mystery that holds us here also. Oof. I want to end with, um, I don't know if it's an end, but something that we see in Chukat, and this is a, just a something that always just kind of really pulls me, you notice something that happens in Chukat towards Balak also, that after, this is another thing, by the way, after Moshe's death is decreed, so we say we see B'nai Israel like making decisions, they like go to war, and they call to God, and they start to take a more active role, okay? And we also see songs and poetry begin to emerge. Right? There's, there's some kind of strange thing mentioned. Um, it says in Sefer Milchamot Hashem, Alken Yomru HaMoshlim, there's, there's this kind of poetic, biblical poetry going on. And then there's this kind of odd story about the travels of Israel. And it says that they traveled, Be'era, Kiha Be'era, Sheremar Hashem Moshe, Esofetam, Ve'enelahemayim. There's a big machlok at what is this well we're talking about? Some of the Mepharshim say, we're talking about the well that we just learned about, where God said, gather the people together, I'm going to give them water. Now look at this, Az Yashir Yisrael, at Azot. There's another Az Yashir. It didn't just happen at the splitting of the sea, it happened after the death of Miriam, and at the place where Moshe was decreed his death, they sang another song, Aliv Er Enula, Arise, O Well, Be'er Chaparu Asarim, Karua Nedivei Ha'ab, Mechokek Mishotam, just these going to this strange symbolic poetry. It sounds, according to some of the Farshim, that it has something to do with um, the leaders of this nation, the Mechokek, the lawgiver of this nation. And there's a gift, Mimibar Matana, from the desolate place, a gift. Umimatana Nachaliel. And from the gift, there is an inheritance, a divine inheritance. Uminachaliel Bamot. And from that divine inheritance, there is an elevation of Bamot. Umibamot. Hagai Asher Moav. From that elevated point, what do we get to? We get to the valley, the cliff that is in the field of Moab, Rosh Hapiska, the peak of the mountain of the um, of the outlook, It's the point at which you can stare off into the Yeshimon. Yeshimon means the desolation. We have this strange poem going on, okay? It talks about a gift coming from the desert, an inheritance from the gift, an elevated point that then reaches towards this cliff that's staring off into the wilderness. And this exact language, it's talking about where Moshe was buried. It's Ste Moab. It's at the peak of the mountain in the fields of Moab. Nishka Rosh Hapiska. We read to you from from the the last chapter in the Torah. It says Vayal Moshe Me'arvod Moab. He arises from those plains of Moab. El Harnavo Rosh Hapiska. Back to that peak of the mountain. Asher Al Pnei Yirecho. Vayarehu Hashem et Kol Haaretz Tagilad Adam. Look at these two psukim. In in Chukad we're saying it's. 
the fields of Moab, Rosh Hapiska Nishkafa the peak of the mountain, looking out onto the desolate wilderness. Here, when Moshe is finally buried, he goes from the fields of Moab, Rosh Hapiska, the same words, to that mountain peak, Asher, not Alpnei Hayeshimo, not on the face, not facing the wilderness, but Alpnei Yerecho. He's looking at Jericho now. The Yeshimon became Yericho. What Moshe had perhaps at first seen as a desolate wasteland that he stared at from this mountaintop where he was going to be buried, when it finally came time for him to arrive there, he's looking at the future. He's looking at Yericho. He's looking at the place that B'nai Israel are going to enter into. Yes, without him. But he sees the entire land. He gets a vision. Moshe, his final place is a place of a kind of everlasting vision of what can still be, even though in his own life it wasn't. I'm going to be here for the time and in the ways that I'm going to be here. And I have something of meaning to somehow cultivate in this life that will reverberate beyond my life, whether through my generations or whether through just the presence that I embodied in this world. That's one version of that vision that Moshe is going to hold. But Moshe is teaching us that the only way to transform the wasteland into the future inheritance is by embracing that deep and present unknown. By orienting ourselves time and time again to Moshe lo yada Moshe doesn't know who's speaking to him. Moshe doesn't know when God's going to speak to him. Moshe has no idea what God's going to say to him. Moshe doesn't know where his life's going to end. And he places himself, he buries himself in the place of the unknown. That's the path he walks into the end of his life. And, and I think in a very real way, that, that is what continues forever from him. I, I want to say one more thing here, just about these, this poetry of Parshat Chukat and at some level Bilam also, <laughs> the next poet that we, we hear from. And, and, and you know, the last teaching of, of Moshe is also a poem. He writes Shirata Azinu, that there is a song. Poetry is something that attempts at articulating some of that life that exists beyond all of the endpoints of death. Right? You cannot say in prose the vision of the future that is real. Imagine sitting down and, 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 and writing a mission statement for how it's going to look like. You can't know. And it will be cheap. And it won't communicate anything of substance. But it seems that in the Torah itself, when we begin to, to encounter that deep crevice in reality that Moshe is going to die, the Torah itself begins to turn to song. The Torah speaks in poetry. And I'll share here uh, a memory that is really etched in me. Um, there was uh, some, I don't know if you're, you're familiar with, with the name of Rav Shagar. Rav Shagar was a very special, very important teacher here in Israel. Died, uh, I don't know, somewhat close to a decade, maybe a decade ago. And um, during the time that he was, he was sick, I was studying with Rav Menachem Fruman. And they, the two of them were very close. And, and every time we would learn, the Furman would, would dive in before the learning, would be learning from the Shagar. Shagar. There was just a whole kind of strong focus throughout, throughout the time on, on Rav Shagar's uh, health, on his life. And again, you know, 
great teachers, great people, people who we love. We want, we want to hold on to their lives as much as we can. And the day that Rav Shagar died, Rav Fulman had a, had a class that night. He was teaching Zohar that night. And I remember him speaking about, and here he was, he was teaching with tears. He's speaking about the Midrash that David Melech wakes up in the middle of the night to sing songs to God. And Rav Nachum said that David Melech was learning Zohar. David Melech was involving himself with the the sod of the Torah, with that innermost layer of 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 God's communication. And he said, because sod can only be taught in song, in poetry. Mm. And if you learn the Zohar, the Zohar is not prose. Zohar is 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 divine poetry. It's mystical poetry. Rav Nachum said, because in prose, every line is a complete thought and, and is, is whole. Every sentence is whole. And in song, and in Hebrew works, the shira is both song and poetry. In poetry, every line is broken. Mm-hmm. Every line is incomplete. That's the only way that, that you can teach, so that you can speak to the mystery, is by leaving it incomplete. Is by leaving it broken, is by, if I want to bring it back to what we saw here, leaving space for the unknown to speak through the known, and for the known to really be ways of pointing to the unknown that's present with it. For the unknown not to be a threatening, menacing force that we try to run away from, as in Cheta Ego, or for it to be like a Baal Pa'or, which is an engulfing force that just we drown in the anxiety from it. It just sucks us in and makes us feel that there's nothing else. But to embrace the unknowable as something that accompanies our every breath and our moments of life and the trajectory of our lives. And and in that way, to become, if not friends with it, <laughs> companions with it. <laughs> Maybe let it shepherd us. Many of these recordings are from Rabbi Ami's ongoing weekly classes given at Yeshivat Sharei Shalom in Jerusalem. For more information, go to shalom.org.il forward slash about. This podcast is supported in part from a grant from the Hadar Institute. The music is by Rav Daniel Kohn. The audio engineer is David Kwan. For more from the Shefa Podcast Network, visit our Facebook page and please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts.